Island, wrote John Donne in the 17th century. This is indeed applicable to our health system. Increasing connectivity and data availability creates opportunities to better measure, compare and improve quality of care. But this is not without challenges and risks. In episode 3 we spoke to Dr. McIsaac about her concerns that measuring quality could distract from patient-centered care if not done properly. In this episode we continue the conversation with two guests. We're talking about quality improvement and how to support and incentivize this as a practice level with Associate Professor Charlotte Hasby, who has chaired a PHN and is the current chair of the board of the Australian College of GPs. But our first guest is Dr. Daniel Butler, Queensland GP and researcher. Daniel has looked at quality from a systems perspective by examining large databases like the Medicare Benefits Schedule. My name is Dr. Edwin Cruz and my co-host is Dr. Ashley Broomfield. Welcome to the Bridge Builders podcast, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about quality today. And I was wondering um, whether you could elaborate a little bit about the concept of quality and the definition of quality. I was more interested in looking at quality of care in terms of how that relates to the broader uh, structure of the health system or organisation of the primary healthcare system um, and sort of looking at more how service organisation from one area to the next might vary and then how that can shape the quality of care a person as an individual receives in that area. Um, And so I did obviously a a lot of work around thinking about how you can measure quality of care, what that means and what are the definitions. And obviously it's a really complex issue and has multiple facets to it. One way that, that it's been looked at certainly in the international space, is that they talk about quality of care in three levels at a systems level anyway. So in terms of thinking about the structure of care, so equipment and human resources, you can think about the processes of care, so um, use of guidelines, the way care is delivered, and then the outcomes of care, so the outcomes of those processes, health status, patient evaluation, patient um, satisfaction. A direct outcome of the primary health care system is in terms of the output, so the type of care that a person receives, the quality of that care, so continuity of care, um, whether it's comprehensive care um, and those sorts of things. And then there's the more direct outcomes that are sort of downstream a bit from that in terms of um, you know, GP-like uh, ED admissions or avoidable hospitalizations, disease prevalence and those sorts of things. So that's kind of the framework in which I looked at quality of care. Um, and it's, a, I guess, a broader systems perspective rather than looking at that real micro relationship around quality of care, which is about that patient and provider or practice interface and, and the complexity that exists in that relationship. So something that we've found is a a recurrent theme is that it's quite complex to measure. Yes, because it means different things to different people. And we're also constrained by the things that we can actually measure and, and the resources that we have available to do that. So, you know, I think one thing certainly at a systems level that I've seen a lot of focus on internationally and particularly in the US and Canada is, um, you know, looking at things like GP-like admissions as a proxy measure of, of quality of care in primary health care. It's quite difficult with those because there are so many other factors that determine whether a person has an avoidable hospitalisation or whether they're likely to present to emergency or not. And there is certainly studies in Australia that have shown that it's more about the 
the individual about whether they're more likely to have an avoidable hospitalisation than about their access to care. So in terms of how many GPs are available to them in their area. So, you know, I think there is no perfect, in terms of the systems level, there's certainly no perfect measure that you have relating to quality of care. Um, and I think you do need to come from it from a number of different angles and how they relate to how we design our health system to get an understanding of what quality of care is and, and how we can achieve that. And so, Danielle, what kind of response have you had from GPs in relation to your research? I was looking at administrative data and so things that I could capture in the in the um, MBS data, so things like whether a person had received a long consultation, um, measuring their continuity of care in terms of the proportion of their services being with the sole provider and what percentage that was, um, and then whether a person had received care planning or not. Um, and, of course, that raises lots of questions for people because they are a proxy measure. They, they give us an indication that we expect there to be good processes in that interaction that are associated with quality of care and better health outcomes or better quality of life or patient satisfaction. And there is some data certainly to show that things like length of consultation, continuity of care and care planning are associated with those um, health, you know, harder health outcomes, um, but they are still proxy measures. And so I think that I do get a lot of questions about, well, how do you know that that's actually leading to good quality of care? and and we have we can assume that it does and 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 there is some evidence to support that but we can never you know exactly know is there agreement around what a quality framework in general practice should look like and what kind of different <clears throat> angles need to be included so I think in terms of, I guess, a health systems evaluation or um, performance monitoring um, and evaluation, uh, certainly internationally, there seems to be a developing consensus about how that should be perceived. I guess that's very different to a, a, um, a quality framework for quality improvement within a practice. And I, and I can't speak to whether there is consensus about what that looks like. When I, when I did start to look at this issue some years ago when I was starting my thesis, there seemed to be a lot of um, discordance in people's opinions and ideas about what that was and, and many different alternatives offered about what, you know, a quality framework should look like. And I guess it also matters where you are, whether you're rural or whether you're in the city. It is very variable, isn't yep. it? So it may be very hard to have a universal solution. Yep. So I guess, you know, one of the things that I found with my research is, um, you know, so in terms of measuring, certainly there was a variation in quality of care between areas. Um, and even within regions. So if you looked at major cities versus and, and or, uh, you know, more remote areas, even within those areas, you would see a lot of variation in quality of care. And I guess there were some trends of certain things that were uh, in the health, the way the health system is designed um, and the relationship with that quality of care that occurred within each of those areas. But those relationships weren't necessarily the same if you were living in the city or whether you're living in a more remote area. So so you're, you're right. It, it, I guess it does need to take into account that quality of care varies between areas and the determinants of that may vary as well. And so 
but we can measure that and we can identify that. And I guess that then allows you to then step in at that lower level and start to understand, well, what's actually going on here at a local level that's that's determining um, these relationships. So what impact does that have then on funding for healthcare in primary care, do you think? I, so I guess it potentially has, you know, it certainly has important implications doesn't it so I guess there are general patterns that and, and general things that you can look at as, a, as an average across the whole system that are important but then you can also recognize that the certain areas there are different relationships and so that requires a different policy focus or funding focus but there's also I guess a sense of that need for flexibility in your funding so that you can tailor it for certain areas and or tailor solutions for certain areas um, and and for certain groups. So it sounds to me like an incredible complex area and just looking at your own practice data itself uh, is probably not enough. You need to place it in a larger, broader view. And for that to happen, other parties need to come on board. Like you said, the the hospital data is important and uh, you may need some other uh, data sources as well if you really want to get a good picture. Is that right? You have the that individual provider, and and they can do their own sort of reflective quality of improvement on how they practice. Um, and then you can have your policy people, or your health services researchers, or you, you know your larger, I guess, service delivery organisations that can take that broader systems perspective. But I think it's also the sharing of that information um, that gives you the richness of understanding. So it's taking those multiple perspectives. From the same um, to the same problem to come up with the best potential solution or the best understanding of what's going on. So, uh, for example, like with my work that I've done, and and so I can talk about these broad patterns of of relationship. Um, but I think it it's then taking it to um, uh, that local, you know, taking it to people who are actually at the coalface and saying, you know. Well, this is what our system looks like when we measure it in this way, you know, and getting that feedback from that coalface of, of how they might explain it or understand it um, that could be quite illuminating for things that we're not able to see from those, those that big data perspective. So I don't, I don't think there's one or the other right answer. It is, it is complex, but, um, you know, we, we do have proce- approaches for understanding that complexity and then by having that dynamic conversation between people who are at the coalface, people who are doing the research and people who are making the decisions that underpin our policy or our service delivery, um, I think it's that dynamic that can result in, in uh, good policy and good changes to improve care. Excellent. Thanks very much, Daniel. And thanks for explaining this incredibly uh, complex uh, topic for us. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. How do we make quality improvement fun? What is needed to support GPs and their teams to review the data and make a change? I have yet to meet someone who is more passionate about quality improvement in general practice than our next guest, Associate Professor Charlotte Haspi. Charlotte is a practice owner, she has chaired a PHN and is the current chair of the board of the RSCGP. Charlotte, welcome to the Bridge Builders podcast. Thanks, Edwin. I'm really excited to be here with you. 
We've just spoken to Daniel Butler about quality at a very high population level. I know you're very much involved with PHNs. You're now chair of the board of the RSCGP as well. I'm very interested in your view on quality, but not so much at the higher level, but more at the practice level, and possibly how the two interact with each other. Thanks, Edwin. That's a great question. Because I think you're right, it depends on how micro-detailed you want to be about what does quality look like. So is the quality of our individual um, sort of interaction versus the quality of the care that the practice is delivering versus the care of the um, whole population within which you're living might be receiving. So you can look at it from an Australia-wide, statewide, um, PHN-wide and practice level. My passion has certainly been about practice level quality and I think that that passion arose when I got involved in the collaboratives, when I actually had that aha moment that the power of general practice and good quality general practice was not just about the patient in front of me. And to sort of try and flesh that out a little bit more is that I, you know, I'm, I think I'm like most GPs. I, I thought I was doing a great job and I got good feedback from my patients and I would, you know, come up with the thought of how many patients I was looking after who had diabetes and this, that and the other. But I'd never actually looked at my actual practice figures. And so when I started to do that, it opened up this completely different world about what it is that I was doing, what I was accountable for, and what I could actually do to make a difference for even more than just my individual encounter. Charlotte, I want you to talk a little bit about how your experience of looking at outcome measures at a practice-based level has helped to enhance your face-to-face consultations because I guess there's this worry that if we're if we're going to focus on something outside of what's hap- what's presenting to us because based on data that it's going to change the consultation and perhaps make it harder for the clinician to focus on patient-centered care but also focusing on something that's not about what the patient has come in for. Can you ex- describe your experience? Okay, yep. So I did ask myself how can I improve what I'm doing? You know, what is it that I'm doing that I can change? And so I actually started using a couple of tools and the one that I really liked most is one called Doctor's Control Panel. And I like Doctor's Control Panel because it's little and it only sits in the corner and it has this easy traffic light system. So what that, what Doctor's Control Panel did for me was was able to alert me to data that I had or didn't have in that particular patient's file. Now I could ignore it if I chose and it was just in the corner so I didn't need to look at it. but it also allowed me to see, oh my gosh, there's a whole lot of red. And so I can ask permission of my patient to say, look, I just noticed that in my care of you, there's some things that I haven't actually done recently that I know if I do will actually mean that we can care, I can care for you better going forward. And so it actually opened up a permissions to have a sort of a more data in inverted commas, um, part of the consultation. So I would sort of ask permission to do the, you know, that data filling exercise. Okay, we're just going to update your sort of social record. I'm going to update your family history. Since the last time I asked, do you think anything 
different has happened. And I might say, on record, I've got, you know, your dad's alive, your mum's alive, you've got an uncle with heart disease. And they go, oh, no, actually, mum died nine months ago. Oh, okay. And so then you have the conversation, well, how was she, etc. So you start to update the family history. I wasn't doing that before then. I'd recorded it, but I didn't have a system of regularly updating or touching base with the patient. And I certainly hadn't a system of having... Um, permission from the patient to do it and so it's just amazing and now actually patients will tell me off when I haven't actually updated their files because they know that's something that I do so it's become that regular part of conversation. At the moment there's a lot of discussion about quality and there's also angst when measuring of data is combined with incentives and when data leaves the practice to elsewhere, for example, uh, PHNs, uh, what's going to happen with that data? So there's the data discussion, and the second is, of course, what happens if you start incentivizing certain measurements or certain behavior that has some risks? It also has got a lot of benefits. So how can we make sure that it doesn't negatively affect the care of our patients like has happened in the UK, for example? Yeah, and I, and I really think that the lessons from the UK need to be taken to heart. And the, my thing from the lessons from the UK was that it, was, it became about the data, not about the patient, and that it became about um, that the pa- all of the practice payments were so dependent on that data that they did lose touch with it, and nobody enjoyed it. And so yeah. it became a miserable yes. outcome for everybody. And we don't want that. Certainly, you know, like how I'm doing it at the moment, it's added joy because I actually really enjoy having that conversation with people. You know, just it opens up stuff that I just, you know, otherwise hadn't done. Back to the data going out of the practice, I can, I've seen that by sharing my data with other practices, I can start to compare my data to other practices, not in a competitive way, though having said that, doctors are always competitive and we like to think that we do better. But in a, oh wow, they've managed to achieve that percentage of, you know, of, of waist circumference measurements. How, mm-hmm. how are they doing that when we're, you know, we're here? And then having a chat with them and go, you know, what, what, what are the strategies that you've done? And you, yeah. you learn so much. So it's about the actually ability to share with people about, well, this is the approach we took. Um, it was a bit like diabetes screening. You know, we, we were trying to figure out how we could improve using the Oz diet for, for patients. And we took a particular approach, you know, just actively recalling people in, having the conversation, blah, blah, blah. And the patients loved it. Yet some other pe- doctors are told me, oh, no, no, they, don't want, they won't want to do that. And I go, well, mm. just try it because it actually worked really well. But I guess the, the concern is that if you're being asked to reach certain levels because otherwise you're not going to get your payment, is that going to distract you from you know, what the patient comes in Okay, with? so it's or the being you, paid you... for certain levels that I would dispute with. And certainly the conversations I've had with government is that it should never be about being paid for levels. It's being paid for improvements and or maintaining you know so what sorry what do you mean with improvements so um, so for instance if we might look at um, cardiovascular disease because that is a little project that I have been particularly interested in is how do we improve the number of patients that we're actually screening for risk and then um, actually having conversations about doing the things that we know evidence wise are going to stop them um, having a heart attack or dying 
is so you look at all those di- different individual measures you can make it boring and talk about you know have i actually done their weight their height their waist circumference their blood pressure their cholesterol levels etc mm-hmm. um and you but then if you actually go okay if my target the target is is that 50 percent of your patients in this particular age group should have the data that equates with being able to measure their cardiovascular risk in their health record okay so that's my target now if i'm down at 46 percent, it's not that i don't get paid for it but what i should be being paid for is showing that i'm going to make some changes and that over the next 12 months i move it from 46 to say 47 or 48 and show that there are things that i'm doing that mean that we've targeted that as a project and we're moving there now once i've got to their target I can choose to keep going and or stabilize, but then you don't get the payment if you start dropping off. Sure. So you're talking about the process of improvement, the practice process that is being rewarded or incentivized, not the actual clinical indicator, whether that be a blood pressure level. So it's not the outcome, but you're talking about process process indicators. Yep. Yep. And if you look at process, that's where you're, because it's about the change in process and the introduction of systems about how you go toward going there, that actually starts to improve quality. The government though is talking about outcomes. Of course they're talking about outcomes. And that's why we need to have the conversations about, it's not about the outcomes, it's about the process. And which goes back to that bigger picture of, you know, what is, what is quality? And Mm. um, I, I'm a strong believer that quality is the outcome of having a number of things in place. And that's where we get to process. And so, and that's why the, there's a lot of conversation about the Tom Bodenheimer 10 building blocks. Now, those in themselves are nothing about quality, mm. but what we know is that a high performing practice in the United States has those features. Is this the one where it's got the clinician happiness in it as well? Uh, no, the clinician happiness is part of what we call the quadruple aim. Yeah, the, okay. and the, the fourth aim is... Is actually having ha- the clinicians enjoying. Yep, that's right. So the, the quadruple aim is saying that as a practice, we're looking to improving the patient experience of the healthcare that they have. We're actually looking to improve their health. We're looking to make overall in the whole greater system that it will be cheaper. Now, in general practice, that actually might mean that it's more expensive. Because being more expensive in general practice is still a drop in the bucket in comparison to the cost savings if we don't if we keep them out of hospital, and I think that's a really hard thing to win over with politicians because and with patients too because they what you want is you don't want them in the hospital so they never never know that you've saved them in the hospital but we know that we've saved them if we actually sort of look at the number crunching in terms of where we've prevented but really interestingly so um, the one of the studies in western city sydney has shown that the primary care that actually sees patients more is the practice that is saving the local hospital the most money because those patients are not going into hospital. And that is so exciting. And if we can do that proof, then we can start, hopefully, to get the government to pour more money into general practice, which is really what we need in order to support the process change that will be required in order to have GPs feel the joy of doing the things 
that I've talked about. This is part of your joy in terms of improving the quality of your own practice. Can you talk a little bit about how the doctors in your practice who aren't the practice owners have responded to the collaboratives and, and their experience of it as well? Uh, the, the experience of our practice is a very happy one. Okay, so again, if you look at the building blocks about what leads to a quality sort of outcome, it's about having engaged leadership. It's about working together as a team, as well as then the data and the, um, well, they call you know, having a, a patient population that you know is yours. But if I go back to that sort of team-based care and um, engaged leadership, it's about actually having conversations about what is it that we as a practice are working to, making sure that everybody's on the same page. And, you know, quite honestly, if you don't have someone who's on the same page, then it's, you're probably better off not having them working there than having somebody who doesn't want to work in those systems. If you don't prioritise it, then again, that means it won't work. So it has meant a, a cultural shift. So the whole practice has the same culture of understanding that we can get better together and everyone has a right to feedback. It's not just about the practice owner, this is actually about all the doctors and everybody benefits because we're all actually um, doing that better health sort of care delivery. So Charlotte, do you think that we as a profession are talking enough about A, what is quality and B, how should we measure it? Um, look, I think the quality conversations are starting. I think it's a difficult conversation because there's a sort of a, a sense, I think, amongst Australian doctors about th feeling a bit threatened, that, you know, people are always saying, oh, the GPs aren't doing this enough, and, oh, you know, they're not doing a good enough job, and, you know, I see on GPs down under, you know, if I see another study that comes out that says GPs should be doing this better, um, I'm going to you know do a bonfire or something and and I get that and you know we do feel it because we are we're in charge of so much and that whole multi-morbidity chronic management stuff is big but when you start actually pulling it apart and making the joyousness and the fun and saying you know this is why I love general practice because mm. we do have that challenge and what does quality care look like and yeah. wow we really can make mm. a difference and measurably do you know you can feel such a reward I just had a um, meeting with a GP who was saying to me that as part of a project that I was doing on cardiovascular disease prevention we were giving them regular reports and encouragement about the things that they could do to improve she said it was so wonderful yeah. I felt so proud because the feedback was how what a good job we were doing I guess once we figured out what definition of quality is and that it may actually change from practice to practice from mm. area to area then we have agreed how we're going to measure it, then that's only the beginning because just presenting the practice with a report oh, is, uh, not, is, is nothing. nothing. So right. there needs to be some sort of a support or a framework about how are you actually going to implement that change. Absolutely spot on, Edwin, and that's, that's the issue. The report is nothing. It's a piece of paper that will stay on your desk and make no difference if that doesn't go with an action plan. It's a bit like mm. you can give a care plan to a patient, it's a piece of paper unless it's actually mm -hmm. accountable. And that's why they've actually shown in some a lot of the studies now, the first care plan is a nothing. If you don't have a review of the care plan, you don't make a difference to somebody's health. It's the reviews of the care plan 
that start actually improving health outcomes. It's exactly the same with this. Your baseline data report means nothing. It's the review of your, 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 mm. your data and the review of your data, but having the conversation. What is, what is it there? What are the things that we can do? And making it little and doable because if you start going, I'm overwhelmed, I can't do all of that, you just have to do one little thing at a time and, you know, and then work at it. And so how are we going to do that? Well, that's where I think the PHNs have a role. Yep. Um, the problem at the moment, and I've said this to government, so I don't mind saying it again and again and again, is that they are not funding the PHNs to do that support. And it is no good to give the PHNs the responsibility of overseeing quality improvement and overseeing the data if they don't actually fund them to take a significant responsibility for then teaching and assisting and enabling practices to then do something with that data. How do we enable that system to improve quality? Um, I think it's about sitting back and reviewing your systems. Um, because by and large, I think that most of the time there's an inefficiency somewhere and you, there's no doubt you have to prioritise time to do this. If you don't prioritise the time, it will, you'll always be too busy. It's the same as anything. You know, um, I'll get round to it, but you don't. And then you finally do and you realise that you could have been doing things better. So you need to prioritise. You need to actually set this as a, a priority in, in the practice. You need to allocate it to one particular person as a particular job who then gets bite-sized measurable things to do. I mean, I think nurses are a great place to start because all, you you might need to just pay for an extra half a nurse, can I say, um, and commit to expending. I think that really, ideally, practices all need an upfront payment to say, you need to sit back, use this money to actually you know, allocate some time, look at mm. your structures, who do you need, what's your sort of ideal outcome and then put that in place and then ongoing money to fund that particular role because until we actually fund that as a specific important job then it will always be the lowest of priorities because you know patient care will always come first. It can be really overwhelming, as you say, Edwin, when it's like you're going to have to put aside this time for your practice nurse and one of the doctors to actually be involved in it. And it's probably useful to then find somebody who's been through it, like Charlotte and, you know, say a mentor or someone, you know, if you want to do that and you want to be the champion in your practice mm-hmm. to to find somebody who's done it, to ask about their experience and, and help along the way. I yep. agree. Yeah. It's exactly as Ash mentions it's having that sort of mentor but it's not just about a mentor it's about being able to go to a group and go as I said you know like how how did you do that Edwin how did you get everybody in your staff to start doing that process yeah and different things work easy and having the support and sharing your experience the minute you get a doctor to have to do more things and them feeling like they're time pressured it's not it's going to fall over so it is, it's about sort of decluttering their time, making it more fun and giving them more time to be truly patient-centred, which again then improves that quality of the feeling of the, the relationship that you have with your patient in the consultation, which all of us are asking for. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Charlotte. Thanks very much. Thanks, Edwin. Thanks, Ash. Mm-hmm.